Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Global Ethics and Politics, a channel of the New Books Network, brought to you by the Center for Global Ethics and Politics at the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the City University of New York Graduate Center. I'm your host, Susan Irk. Today I'll be speaking with Michael Menzer, author of We Decide, Theories and Cases in Participatory Democracy, published by Temple University Press in 2018. Michael Menzer is an assistant professor of philosophy and urban sustainability studies at Brooklyn College and assistant professor of earth and environmental sciences and environmental psychology at the CUNY Graduate Center, as well as author of We Decide. Let us now turn to the interview. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Susan. Thank you. I love a book with an exclamation point in the title. Yes, and uh, also I'm associate professor now, so I've been promoted since this this year. So that's uh, that's exclamation point oh. worthy as well. Okay, that's that's fantastic. Um, can you please tell us about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. So I was a graduate student in the 1990s, and at that point, the global order was undergoing a kind of collapse and and re, uh, a reconstruction as the Cold War came to an end. The Berlin Wall came down. And this new era of globalization started to, to, be, uh, to come forward. And when I was in graduate school, philosophically, I was very interested in philosophy of science type issues. That's what I did undergrad. I was at Pitt, University of Pittsburgh. And at the CUNY uh, Graduate Center, I was also interested in cultural studies of science, philosophy of science, philosophy of biology is what I did my dissertation in. But politically, New York was a very interesting scene in the 90s, especially because of the end of the Cold War. And there were lots of different forms of more participatory politics that were coming forward. And anarchism in particular was a very fertile ground. And I was involved with a lot of those kinds of movements that became the Direct Action Network and were involved with the anti-globalization movement. And what became clear was that there were lots of different kinds of folks in this this area um, who were very interested in self-government, in collective ownership, in DIY. Uh, but there was really no theoretical articulation of the norms of these different groups. And there was things that they agreed on and things that they disagreed on. So that was really puzzling to me and also really exciting to me that there could be this kind of space where different f- types of folks interested in different projects could connect on the participation aspect. They wanted to be you know, much more egalitarian in how they made decisions. But they had very different politics in other ways. And that was uh, sort of the the ground in which I started to th- think about this project. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, so please just tell me generally, what is participatory democracy and does it differ from democracy as we know it in the U.S.? Right. Well, this is highly frustrating and embarrassing to, to, for us in philosophy. We've so confused our understanding of democracy. It's really, really just mind-boggling. So the first thing is that participatory democracy is about sharing power. It's not about having a voice. The, the obsession with having a voice and the obsession with deliberation and discourse does a real disservice to the origins of democracy, the evolution of democracy, and the potentials of democracy. If you go back to the Greeks, then we need to go back to others and not just the Greeks, which I, I discuss. But if you go back to the Greeks, it was not about having a voice. It was about different ways of collectively sharing power 
and also sharing the, the duties of administration. And so in, the, in that polis, you had all these folks who were involved with not just making laws and rendering judgments, but about filling public offices, by administering certain kinds of policies, by not just being on juries, but helping to administer the streets or helping to administer the enforcement of justice and police and schools and all kinds of things. So democracy in just its simplest form is self-rule. And that means folks have a say, at least, uh, but much more than a say. They have a say and they have power in making decisions over the conditions which they inhabit. And that means in the political sphere, in the economic sphere, in the social sphere. So that is very different from the conception of democracy as elections. The founding fathers, of course, of the United States were not interested in democracy at all, with the minor exception of Ben Franklin and a little bit Thomas Jefferson. Uh, elections have a completely different history. They're invented by kings many hundreds of years ago to give nobles something to do. So do you want this guy to talk to me first or this guy to talk to me first? That was the origin of elections. John King and his Life and Death of Democracy, 800 pages, uh, goes through the history of all these different forms of democracy. So you can look at that. Democracy as self-rule has a completely different kind of tradition, a different kind of origin. And, but it becomes associated with elections not until the mid-19th century uh, when the first American politician to, to speak of democracy favorably is Andrew Jackson. And that's a kind of populist. And of course, Andrew Jackson is a very complicated, nasty mm -hmm. guy. Um, but, and he starts to, to say, oh, people voting in elections, this is what we mean by democracy. Now, if you go back to the history of philosophy, of course, philosophy begins by foreclosing on the possibility of democracy, right? So the very first philosophers are against democracy, Plato, mm -hmm. Aristotle, at least in that mm -hmm. canonized sense. So that's kind of fascinating. Our own field, right, has very explicitly anti-democratic origins. Yes. Um, and then, but it, because it's become, it becomes opened up in, in various other points. Uh, and then one of the things I try to do in the book is create a, a philosophical history or tradition to, to get this more collective uh, power wielding conception of democracy. And for that, most folks go to Rousseau. Uh, and Carol Pateman is really the only, you know, she's the locus classicus work in the, in the field of participatory democracy that comes out in 1971, mm -hmm. her book, Participation in Democratic Theory. And her canon is, it also starts with Rousseau. It doesn't start with the Greeks, which we can go into later if you want. Um, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty, um, Minimal canon. John Stuart Mill is one of the only other folks uh, to really elaborate on what would popular participation that has collective power look like uh, in his, his political work uh, in the 1860s uh, in Principles of Government. Um, and um, that's about it in terms of the history of philosophy. Kropotkin is another figure that I would love to see included in the history of philosophy uh, who did much uh, you know, amazing work in evolutionary biology. But in his work, Mutual Aid, he goes through a whole history from an evolutionary biology context of collective decision-making. And so I would, and I would love to do an essay on Kropotkin and Mill. They're really two different incarnations and articulations of what power-sharing government and economic life could look like uh, from a participatory democracy perspective. But that's a little bit. So I think that, again, we have to get out. I mean, of course, we want elections. We want good elections. They need to have integrity and so on. That's a huge issue. But that shouldn't be our understanding of what democracy is all about. Democracy is about this collective, uh, collective power, uh, sharing of power, which can be in terms of ownership and management, administration, and that's what the book really goes into. Yes, I really appreciated the history of democracy and the history of philosophy in your book. Um, can you also talk about the, the origins of democracy in the Iroquois? Right. So another 
big problem that we have in philosophy and in our popular understanding of democracy is that democracy began with the Greeks. No, 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 no. Bad, <laughs> bad. It's, it's bad on many levels. One is there's no sense, there's actually no sense in which ancient Athens was a democracy in the popular model. Most people could not participate in the political life of the city. Women, none, and women had very little economic power as well at that time. And a minority of males participated because there were slaves at that time. There were folks that didn't have property who were male. Uh, and so we only have – now we, we have several thousand are participating, 6,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 in an area of about 200,000 people. So 15 percent, 10 percent, you know, different numbers, different, uh, different ways of understanding how many people participate in political life. So it was definitely less than half and probably less than 30% or 20% by most counts of people who had political power. Mm -hmm. eh, not a democracy, right? Now, those folks who did have political power, though, they really in innovated some very um, effective uh, and creative forms of sh power sharing mechanisms. So they had lottery to determine who became office. They had these incredible assemblies where literally thousands of people would make collective decisions. I mean, inc incredible to think about now. And so that's very innovative. But that doesn't mean that they were democracy in the popular sense of most people had political power. Uh, or in the sense that I certainly mean it where, for me, participatory democracy requires not just collective determination and a kind of power sharing, but it also requires a kind of sharing of authority and a reduction in inequality. Ancient Greece... There was some social mobility and economic mobility in ancient Greece, but they didn't have that. The Iroquois is a much better model on all these norms. So the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee and their own uh, self-understanding and language, uh, the Six Nations, the Onondaga, the Oneida, Cayuga, Mo Mohawk, and Seneca, uh, they innovated an incredible form of government around in the 13th century, uh, founded by this great law of peace. They had been war at war for many, many decades, or if not many, uh, more than 100 years. And women really led that peacemaking process. And so from the start, it was a much more women-centered political system because women controlled the property and also your name came from your mother's side. So it was matrilineal. And that system also had a lot of power sharing uh, at the local level and the clans, at the, the, the nation level in terms of the Onaga, Onaga or the Oneida, and then at the federation level where there were different kinds of powers that the different nations had. And they also had a much fairer distribution of economic assets, which was generally land at that time. Um, and they had a division of duties that was also gendered like the Greeks. So men and women had different duties, but women probably had a little bit more political power overall than men did uh, because of the, the control over the economic assets, which was the land. The other thing about the, the Iroquois or the Haudenosaunee was it was a very ecologically oriented society. So it was an expansionist society, which is interesting. They were always interested in having new members. They were not an isolated kind of federation. Uh, they saw expansion as a kind of peacemaking and they traded extensively. But they also had a very, you know, what we would think of as an agroecological understanding of agriculture, the way in which they planted. Uh, they had a very kind of commons conception of way land distribution should happen. And uh, they also recognize non-humans as part of their polity. So beavers and bears and – but uh, yeah, so that's really – and that makes them very contemporary uh, you know, because of the ecological um, insights of that political system. And so one of the things I do in the book is I say I put the Iroquois case study right next to Athens. So I keep Athens. I mean what do you, you know, I'm not – it's so arrogant and naive to believe you can just jettison uh, Athens. But I really think in our canonical understanding, you need to have 
and again, there's others too, but the Iroquois alongside of Athens is just a great way of going back to the history of democracy. Okay, yeah, thank you for that history. Um, so in your book, there's also a lot of emphasis on the importance of democratizing the workplace. So why is it important to democratize the workplace? I think that a number of political theorists of varying traditions recognize that if you have severe inequality in the economic sphere, it plays out in the political sphere, Sandel notwithstanding, right? So this is a big deal in the 19th century. Marx has a take on that. Mill has a take on that. Others have a take on that. And it comes up with the social contract theorists to some extent. Uh, they deal with it in different ways in the, in, the, in the 17th century. But certainly, I think it's pretty well understood that especially when you have intense accumulations of economic assets, it just plays out bad in bad ways politically. And certainly, if you have some sort of notion of political equality, intense economic concentration of assets is going to undermine political equality in terms of the average person's ability to have influence on policy and so on. So Mill really does a nice job of, 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 uh, of forwarding this conception that, well, look, and Mill was not a kind of participatory Democrat in the political sphere. He had a kind of notion of representative government, which was half oligarchic, just like the parliament was. But he recognized that there had to be a much more egalitarian distribution of economic assets, not full equality by any means, but he could see, you know, capitalism really hitting the next gear in the 1860s and the 1870s, the time he's living. And he thought that worker ownership of firms was a great way of preventing the, the monopolies at the time and the corporations at the time, and he worked for one, so he would know, uh, the British East India Company, um, to prevent them from accumulating too much economic power and then wielding too much uh, political influence. So worker ownership and the first worker co-ops were happening around the same time, Rochdale in, in England, uh, where workers owned retail outlets as well as factories. Okay, wow. I didn't know that it started that long ago. Um, workers have been collectivizing since capitalism began, right? As soon, soon as you start to see the private wielding of property and the surplus Workers are like, whoa, 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 we got to get an alternative form going here. And of course, there's been collective ownership and co collective management of assets since the beginning of human history. Generally, that's articulated as the commons. But as private ownership of the means of production starts to hit and become more widespread in the 19th century, then workers start to develop an alternative model of that instantly. Okay, so um, democratizing the workplace is not this exotic, strange idea. This has been going on since the beginning Absolutely. of capitalism. And in many, many countries, in Brazil and France and Japan, I have a whole chapter on cooperatives in Japan, which is one of the most vibrant scenes. And those are all mostly women-led. Uh, those are the consumer cooperatives in the food system. Uh, and you can see it, um, again, on every continent and every different, every, every different tradition. You criticize theorists for thinking the economy and society could be effectively separated, that they're two completely different things. If right. we can just have um, political rule of, the, of society and just let the economy do its own thing separately. Um, and so you thus call for democratizing the economy. Are there limits to what topics are appropriate for participatory democracy uh, to debate? Should, for example, sexual practices be determined through participatory democracy procedures? Should diet be determined through them? Right, right, right. Yeah, so not just the democratization of the economy, but the democratization of social life. Yes. Great question. So I look at 
six different normative frames for participatory democracy. One thing that I wasn't really sure about when I began the project many, many years ago, really in the 90s, is was participatory democracy itself an ideology? Is it itself a kind of political platform? And I, I, don't, I don't think it is. There's different kinds of normative frames that appropriate participatory democracy as a kind of decision-making with norms attached to it. But as I show, there's a liberalist version of that. There's a communitarian version of that. There's an anarchist version of that. There's an ecological feminist version of that. There's a climate justice version of that. And then there's what's called associationism. So depending on the normative frame that you bring, more or less of your everyday life, of your social life, would be subject to participatory dem democratic procedures. So in a lot of the collectives that I was involved with uh, in the 90s, and the more anarchist and autonomous ones, like they would really subject a lot of your social life to kind of participatory democratic. So you have collective households. Um, now, did sexual practices come up? That's a trickier one. And I think that um, if you see, um, you know, if you look at the history of feminist movements since the 60s and 70s, where there is a kind of collective discussion about women's bodies, about commodification, about patriarchy, then you can see these moments of collective discussions and, and, and sort of new social forms and new social institutions that are trying to grapple with the, the more patriarchal and abusive and, and colonizing aspects of social life. So there's that. I think another history that's relevant is what is called the capitalist colonization of the life world that really starts to hit as consumer society emerges strongly in, in, in the early 20th century, but especially after World War II. So there you're, it does like what I'm, what the clothes I'm wearing or where I buy stuff or the kind of food I eat. It also could be subject to a sort of normative analysis and discussion about what's fair, what's, what's inequality enhancing and what's not inequality um, enhancing. Um, and, but I think that in the, in the history and the different views that I've looked at, so liberals are going to think that a lot of your social life doesn't have to be subject to participatory democratic. And you can be hierarchical. It's up to you. You know, there's that kind of idea. Communitarians, obviously, are going to be more strict about your kinds of social practices, who you're allowed to marry, who you're not allowed to marry. Um, and maybe certain kinds of sexual practices are going to be, um, you know, permitted or sanctioned and some aren't. Um, others don't really have much to say about it. Um, I think the ones that are more feminist, uh, certainly what I call the uh, eco-social, um, sorry, the uh, social reproduction, there's a whole eco, and I, it's an ecological social reproduction view. Then there's going to be, a, you know, a kind of understanding or analysis of a lot of sexual practices because they bear upon the position in, of women in, in society. Um, so there's, uh, those are examples where you would have that kind of at least an, uh, a normative analysis. And then how you actually stipulate the bounds, you know, remains to be discussed. When you're talking about uh, working out these feminist issues through democracy, such as uh, dealing with issues of, of sexual abuse and sexual objectification, the first thing I think is, well, if we, we took a poll of all the women on earth and asked them, what, sh what should we do? Most of them would not have a feminist answer. I want to know, um, is democracy a good way to ensure a good outcome, like a, a mm -hmm. good decision? So there's certainly the debate, the procedural uh, Democrats versus the substantive Democrats. Uh, the substantive thinks that there is a sort of end that you're aiming for, a conception of the good that you're aiming for. The proceduralists are more open about it. So you just got to get the procedures right and whatever happens is what happens. I think one thing... When you talk about like what do people on planet Earth believe in in this given historical moment, uh, it's important to remember that for participatory democracy, democracy is not about elections. It's not just about registering everybody's preferences at a given moment. 
that may or may may not make sense um, and may or may not be good. But participatory democracy is having much more of a say over the conditions in which you exercise your everyday life. That includes your body, that includes property, that includes the institutions that you know, educate you and, and where you get your food and all that kind of stuff. So I think if you approach it from that perspective, um, then feminist considerations will play out in different cultures in different ways, in different historical moments. So, but it's gotta be much more localized than I think than just sort of like a planetary, like well, most women, because the way in which we understand these key concepts like equality, liberty, and collective decision-making have to have a cultural location to really be intelligible on a question like this. And I think that, um, and so then you would parse it, you know, sort of in these different contexts. And look, participatory democracy doesn't solve all problems. That's something I'm very clear about in the book. No political view solves all problems. Liberalism doesn't, socialism doesn't, you know, climate justice doesn't. Um, but there's a role that participatory democracy can play in, in terms of bringing these unequal power relations and unequal authority relations into the public discourse or into collective discourse. And then also draw our attention to, well, who owns it? And what's the institution which sets up that form of ownership? Who manages it? Who, who implements it? Who monitors it? Who regulates it? Um, participatory democracy goes to all those. It's not just about debate and discourse and deliberation. It's about all these other kinds of forms of, of economic and political and social activity. So, uh, and that's why, you know, in the book, uh, it's important to go into the workplace because it's just so central, especially in a, in a culture like ours, where people just spend so much time there. Um, and our, our economic assets are so often tied to that. But it's also important to real, you know, be able to bring participatory democracy into these other sectors of life. But again, recognizing that different frameworks are going to push it into some spheres more than others. Mm -hmm. uh, you're talking about how to not think about it in terms of a global question. You say that it needs to be a localized context. Are there any size limitations of a participatory democracy? Are there population or geographic limitations to a well-functioning participatory democracy? Yeah, I, the scale is a very frequent objection. I can remember going to the APA like in the 90s and there was, a, you know, different views of polit and political theory and someone gave up and said the anarchist view or, you know, participatory democracy view. Well, that's the view which says that everybody must decide everything and so there's too many people so this view is false, right? And I was like, wow, like that was just like a 30 second, you know, this view doesn't count. No, first thing is no political view or no political framework solves all problems within its jurisdiction. So the Chinese Communist Party, right, that's the largest polity on the planet, it's 1.3 billion people. Uh, the Communist Party does not dictate everything that happens in China. There's multiple forms of jurisdiction and authority throughout China. Some of them are semi-feudal, some are aristocratic, some of them are semi-capitalist. Uh, and there's all kinds of different norms and, and, and patterns of authority at play in any, in any polity. Now, what I say about participatory democracy is that, first of all, all of our life does not need to be participatory democratic. There's going to be some, some uh, realms of our life that is some, some, some that aren't. But certainly a lot of economic assets and a lot of political power need to be made participatory democratic. You start with those that are most appropriate for participatory democracy. We see it in the workplace. We see it with participatory budgeting, which you know, we could talk more about, which is a different political form of, of um, participatory de democratic decision making. And we've seen, you know, is there a limit for how big a firm can be in terms of participatory democracy, workplace democracy? Yeah, it's probably around 300. There's been lots of experimentation with that. There are firms that are larger than that in France that are one or 2,000 members. 
but in the in Mondragon in northern Spain, what they've they've that's the largest worker co-op federation on the planet, about ninety thousand workers. And what they've discovered is that 300 is probably the largest that a firm can be and still have people have a reasonable input into decision-making over the course of a year in a firm. So it, what happens when your firm gets too big? You just split it, right? So that's what they do. So they're constantly splitting firms. Uh, and they just have a division of labor across firms. And it works really well. It's one of the most successful enterprises on the planet over the last 70, 80 years. In the political sphere... I think the key thing, of course, is that you want participatory democracy at the local levels and local jurisdictions. Cities are great. Counties are great. This is something that Thomas Jefferson was for. It was basically a like county democracy, what they called ward democracy. Um, depending on the population of states, it can be great. Um, the whole country, it depends on the size of the country. Portugal is a country that has a participatory democratic procedure for the whole country. Portugal is about the same amount of people as New York, it's like 8 or 10 million people. Um, Taiwan is another very large-scale participatory democratic process. Uh, that's about 25 million people. It's called V Taiwan. Um, so those are the largest that we've seen. There have been some states in Brazil of several million people and some municipalities in Brazil that have had participatory democratic pr procedures at, with several million people. So I think that that's you know there's there's definitely possibilities, especially the way especially the way that tech has evolved in terms of communication tech. Um, could there be participatory democratic procedures for the whole United States? No, that seems like a stupid idea. Um, there's other kinds of participatory dem democratic procedures that could set the agenda for the political apparatus of the United States. Because, uh, and I think Boa Santos says this best, participatory democracy is not that I get to decide everything. It's that I, together with everybody else, get to set the agenda. I get to set the agenda. And you could certainly imagine, and we know what the, if you ask most people in New York City, what's the agenda? Affordable housing, right, to the top. A mm -hmm. train that works mm -hmm. and comes on time. Yes, please. Get a lot of those cars off the street, right? And it becomes, and of course, we're fighting about the cars. But you can see six things that are really going to, you know, have a lot of broad support. That doesn't mean that you then have a vote on everything. You see, you see through other procedures what the, the agenda people are. And then you have that much more intense, we're all getting together to decide things. In sectors that people really are passionate about, so maybe the food system, at their local neighborhood level, or in their educational system, or at their workplace, and so on. And I think the one, the, the view of participatory democracy that really tackles the scale problem very intensely and pragmatic, in a pragmatic way, is what's called associationism, which G.D.H. Cole was the big uh, propagator of that view, early 20th century Britain. It's not as a popular view now. Um, but if you read that work, and he was prolific, it's kind of like Dewey, um, wrote it, not, not quite as prolific as Dewey, but and Dewey's a relevant figure here too. Um, but um, you could see how they handle the scale question in terms of, of large administrative states. You mentioned participatory budgeting. Can you tell us more about that? What is that? Absolutely. So I think one of the things that's unusual about my book and also unusual about me in terms of being in the academy is that um, I was involved with a lot of activist work uh, when I was in grad school, which is not so unusual. Um, but I ended up, one of the projects became successful. We ended up forming a nonprofit. So participatory budgeting, which is a procedure by which part of a public budget is turned over to the members of a community to decide on a process on how to spend that money. It started in Brazil. And I'd heard about it um, back in the, uh, in the 90s. And I got to go down to its birthplace, which is Porto Alegre, Brazil, in 2005, met some other folks who were doing it. 
and seeing this process, which is really innovative because it connects the community to a specific branch of the government uh, and then creates a, a multi-month collective decision-making process where people say, okay, these are priorities for the budget. We want housing or we want to fix the schools or the roads. And then they get to create their own procedure by which they make the decisions about the, the projects to, to, that, will, that will be funded by this pot of money. And that's really crucial because with participatory democracy, my view, um, collective determination means we get to write the rules. We get to write the rules. So it's not like you say, oh, okay, you can vote on which one to fund. No, 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 no. We want to have deliberations first. We want to have assemblies first. We want to meet with the relevant experts first. We don't know all this. We want to meet with the city agencies. And so that's what participatory budgeting is. Participatory budgeting is now in over 7,000 cities across the globe, which I, I, like it, I didn't even realize until I was checking the data on this. Um, it spread. We helped to bring it. We formed a nonprofit, the Participatory Budgeting Project, uh, 10 years ago. And we brought it to the United States. We first started in Chicago and then came in New York um, about eight years ago now. And that nonprofit, I'm president of the board. Uh, I've been president of the board for, for the last 10 years while being a um, you know, professor. Um, and we've grown into a multi-city organization that's helping to spread participatory budgeting through uh, 25 different cities in the United States now and, and Canada. And what PB has been able to do is tap the creativity of regular folks in terms of what projects best meet their needs. Uh, it's generally around capital projects. It can also be programs and services. In New York, it's mostly capital. Um, and so we, we've seen very innovative pr uh, proposals. Uh, the first municipal composting program in New York City came out of participatory budgeting in New York City, where the city council was turning over money to have it done. Um, and then other projects and proposals that you see win at a participatory budgeting are, um, are familiar. Uh, you know, new tech for schools, fixing up the park, uh, making an intersection more safe uh, in terms of pedestrians and so on. And the way PB works is it's a multi-stage process, which we're again in the beginning, people are just brainstorming ideas to talk about their needs. And then a group comes together to actually take a subset of those projects to develop in the full-fledged proposals. Uh, uh, making sure that they're technically feasible by talking to the relevant bureaucrats, making sure they're fiscally feasible. In New York City, every project has to be between 35000 and and a million bucks. Um, and then the projects that all get vetted and meet all those criteria, they're put onto a ballot. And in New York City, um, generally, there's anywhere from seven or eight to 25 proposals on a ballot. And then people get five votes and they pick their favorite, their top five. Um, and the winners are the ones that receive the most votes in, in terms of the, of the money allocated. The cool thing is, again, the public decided this process uh, in New York City. So you don't have to be a registered voter. You don't have to be a citizen. Uh, you just have to prove residency in the district. The voting age now is, get ready, 11. 11. What? It was 18, then 16, then 13, and in some districts it's 11, so middle schools. Huh. Uh, became very popular in high schools. And starting next year, it'll be citywide. Uh, our team actually got a, um, a ballot initiative. So there was a referendum, another form of direct democracy, a year ago. And New Yorkers said, we want this process for the whole city. Before, it was just part of the city, part of the city council. And they created a new commission called the Civic Engagement Commission to create the infrastructure for a citywide process. We're in the process of designing this citywide process right now. It rolls out in July 2020. So this is an example, you know, and it's fascinating to see back in the 90s, direct actions, kind of small scale participatory democracy 
efforts. And now here we've, you know, altered the constitution of, you know, one of the, the largest city in the United States to mandate a participatory democratic process take place in the city. Um, and that's a, you know, and that's a triumph um, on a lot of levels, but also that scale question, because if you can do it in a city, you know, with 8 million people, uh, then that certainly shows you it can work at this at this larger level. Then you can do it for some European countries, which have yeah, the population and, and, of New York City. Exactly. Yeah. And in Portugal, we saw that. And then and then the other great thing, though, is that the mayor, the mayor or, or not just European countries, other not countries. just Brazil <laughs> is another big one. Um, Korea is another country that actually has a lot of persuasive budgeting processes going. Um, Taiwan. But Mayor de Blasio also has ordered P participatory budgeting for all the high schools of New York City. That's over 300,000 students. And so what's really exciting to me about that and to us about that, the participatory budgeting project, is that this goes back to the whole, like, well, what is democracy? Is it elections? And this is a different default conception of what democracy is. So now kids will say, oh, democracy isn't just I get to pick someone to make decisions for me. This is where I have to get together with everybody else figure out what our priorities are, figure out what the problems are, and come up with realistic solutions to those problems. And it's the, the participatory budget will be tied uh, either to their political, their political science government class that they have or it will tie to the economics class that they have. So it's part of the curriculum that they learn over several weeks. And again, it's 300,000, 370,000 or something like that students that will be exposed to this process. Uh, as it rolls forward starting. Uh, it, we've done the pilot this last year, uh, and it goes to all the high schools uh, next year. As you're describing this, it sounds so appealing uh, to do this in New York and especially getting young people involved so that they become more of an engaged citizen. It just sounds great, and you're talking about changing things in New York for the better and everywhere. I'm interested in the idea that the main justifying function of participatory democracy is collective determination right, right, right. taken as a good in itself, that seizing one's political fate as a self-determining agent is a good in itself and perhaps a fundamental and, and inalienable aspect of being human. Can you tell us more about this important normative basis of participatory democracy? Right. So I think that everybody should have a participatory democratic process in their life. I mean, that's kind of my default position first. So I don't think that every single thing you do in life should be subject to participatory democratic procedures. But I think some part of your life that is important should. And what that means is that you're an agent in something that's important to you in determining what that conception of the good looks like. And it could be in your personal life, it could be in your house, it could be at your workplace, it could be with your kid's school, it could be in government and with the political party. Um, there's a many, many, many different forms. Now, if you push me, and you are, um, I probably will back off on, is it a net, I mean, so I do think it's a necessary part of the good life is to have political agency. However, I, I weaken that conception by saying, I don't have to have political agency with, res with respect to everything. Right, with respect to the politics, the economy, social life. My, you know. so, but I think everybody should have some part of their life where they do have that kind of effective agency. So, th so that's my view. I mean, certainly you go back to Aristotle, right? And he's got a, a very kind of strong view about what it means to be human, what it means, you know, being human is to be a political animal. It's to, it's to deliberate. It's to, be, to have agency. It's to have duties with respect to the polity. Um, 
I recognize that I'm not going to push that strong of a conception of political agency as Aristotle does. I think that certainly I'm stronger than liberals, right? Um, and you can see that I'm coming out more of an anarchist tradition than a, than a socialist or Marxist or communist tradition, which doesn't have the same kind of conception of political agency, but has a, more of a focus on labor, right? And who owns one's labor. So um, I'm also going to be different from a rights view. And I think, you know, and, and there's a part of the book that I had on Henry Hsu. It's interesting because I, I got into it with Henry Hsu on this. But, um, but I think that with the conception of the good, right, that's, that's how I would... That's how I would frame it, that I need to be an agent with respect to something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, what do you think about Hong Kong and what's <laughs> happening there right now? Well, so I think, you know, Taiwan is a much more interesting participatory democracy setting um, because they have a government there that is implementing these different processes by which people can actually have a big influence on policy. Taiwan, I mean, uh, Hong Kong, you know, when participatory democracy, uh, sorry, when participatory budgeting started in New York City in 2011, that's when the Occupy movement started in New York City. And we saw that spread across the globe. It hit Hong Kong um, a few years back now. It hit Taiwan, it, you know, hit all over the place. And you can see a very similar, excuse me, um, kind of political dynamic happening again with a much more intense version of Occupy because the local uh, government of Hong Kong was viewed to have crossed the line with this extradition law where anybody could basically be shipped back to China. And this went against the, the, the two systems model. I think that it's certainly, it's got a very strong participatory democratic component to it because it's not just about electing the leader of Hong Kong, but it's about authority and jurisdiction and my own standing in the polity. Right. And certainly we would think that it's fundamental that another polity can't take me out of mine because I violated rules over there where I have no influence. I think what's fascinating about Hong Kong which gets us into the 21st century seeing of this stuff is the way that the surveillance state is at work here. And I don't know if you followed some of the details of the Hong Kong protests, which, and I have, they hit at cameras, right? They mask up because the ways in which one's image can be captured also renders one subject to all kinds of authority and all kinds of judgments without one's, you know, acknowledgement at all. And, that, and they are then on the forefront of a battle against this new kind of surveillance state, which is part Communist Party and part Google. And, you know, we could go into China and who built the Great Firewall and it was Cisco and it's been American companies helping them, you know, on, on many different levels. And Google's been criticized for not working with the U.S. military, but working with the Chinese Communist Party, you know. And, and so Hong Kong is really on the forefront of a political struggle that's playing out with the Facebook and the elections and now with the, with the, the, more, the more intense version of the surveillance state. And so it's huge. It's huge on every level. I think those sorts of challenges and what we didn't talk about, climate change and climate justice, but these are the two big challenges of our, of our time, right? 
I mean, economic inequality fundamentally, but the way in which tech is transforming the political and economic landscape, and then the way in which the climate crisis is unfolding in a very intense, more rapid than we thought way. And that's one of the other hats I work with. I work on, with New York City on climate change adaptation through a, an institute that's based here at CUNY. Uh, and so I work with the water utility and, and you know, the New York City um, with the U.S. Army Corps and, and the Port Authority on getting the public having a say over climate change resilience because this is the other big challenge, right? And we have this opportunity possibly with the Green New Deal, which is one of the great you know, kind of political imaginaries of our, of our moment, which harks back to an earlier period of system change. And you got to have participatory democracy in the Green New Deal. It's funny because could, you could see this is sort of the right-wing critique of the, of the New Deal, right? It was too top-down. It was the government. People didn't have a say. There was a lot of pork barrel patronage. All true. you got to have a much more bottom-up conversation around Green New Deal. Same thing with tech. Same thing with tech. And you need to bring in these other kinds of forms. You know, there's a proposal to make Twitter uh, a consumer cooperative so that the users would set the rules. Imagine if that was the case. Trump would be off Twitter. We'd be in a very different political landscape right now if yeah. Trump was off Twitter. Yeah. What would, so, what would the world look like if, uh, if we democratized technology? One simple – just Twitter. <laughs> That's so – it has such a huge impact on the global political conversation. If you democratize just Twitter, um, that could have a very profound effect the way political discourse gets, gets set uh, right now. So Hong Kong, climate justice, climate change. I was just in Brazil. You know, I was able to go back. Uh, to Porto Alegre, where the Amazon is literally on fire. And people from all over the world, by the way, went down to Brazil to put out the fires, which I did not know until I went down there. I had never heard that. Um, but yeah, I think that these are the 21st uh, century struggles. And uh, you could see participatory democracy, the importance of the role, of, among what, many other movements, uh, but the importance of the role that it has to play, especially with tech. Yeah, uh, democratizing technology, not just the technologies we already have, but which technologies should be introduced, like right. facial recognition technology. Right. Right. That would be interesting. And, what and that's kind chapter of... six of my book. I get into the tech question to some extent. All right. So thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else from the book that we did not get to that you would like to highlight for our listeners? Well, the one, uh, I think one thing that I really wanted to do in this book was to not make participatory democracy just this kind of narrowly construed political theory discussion. So I give lots of different examples, as you mentioned, um, from consumer co-ops in Japan to worker co-ops in Spain um, to questions around tech uh, and, and public agencies and water utilities in my chapter six. And the other thing that I think is really important is that this kind of discussion doesn't just happen in political philosophy classes, but happens in business ethics classes. I teach business ethics. And there's three chapters on the economics and on business ethics. And because I could see students wanting to go beyond stakeholder theory and business ethics, right, which is actually completely bankrupt at this point. And I have uh, – there's actually – that's according to the business ethics literature, which no one reads in philosophy. Um, but stakeholder theory was the idea that everybody has a voice, right, bankrupt, pointless, I mean, fiasco, you know, irrelevant, waste of time, on and on. Why? And why? Because um, the – Because managers retain all the power. Right. Because it's a – it's only that managers have to consider stakeholders. Right, right. It's not that the stakeholders actually have say in the process. They have, yeah. They have no formal power. They, uh, the only time they ever have any kind of impact is when there's other kinds of movements that are leveraging power for them through boycotts or through pressure regulation and sometimes civil society organizations. That's very minimal too. I have a whole chapter on this in the book. 
Um, and again, I'm not just talking about like from my ad hoc, you know, you know, views of business ethics, but from going through that literature, there's this great essay by Palazzo and Scherer about how stakeholder theory had just, has just hit the wall. And they wrote this several years ago. So economic democracy is another view now that you're seeing gain more traction, which is collective ownership of firms, collective management of firms, which really alters the, 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 the power dynamics in the economy. So it was very important to me in that in this book I had, you know, and I ended up having three chapters on the economy. I didn't think I'd have that many um, uh, amongst the six chapters of the book. So, so that's just one thing I would want to want to just emphasize is that, you know, this isn't just a political theory question. This is a, a real everyday business question about how we structure the economy. And there's just a lot of interest among students in this stuff now that you didn't see before the financial crisis of 08. They're much more open to this because they see the system just heading into the abyss with the gig economy and with, you know, the kinds of um, the kinds of subjection that the boss has now with your schedule. And Elizabeth Anderson is now wrote, she wrote a book on this, uh, which is half interesting and half just really disappointing in terms of her not engaging with any of the literature on economic democracy. And she kind of points towards an economic bill of rights and it's part atavistic, part anachronistic. And I really admire much of her work, but I was really disappointed in her where she pointed us towards because there's this rich work, Richard Elliman and old political figures like Robert Dahl and David Schweikert and, and a lot of new stuff, uh, Tom Mallison. And um, uh, there's an organization called the Democracy Collaborative that's doing a lot of work in this field. And uh, she doesn't look at any of that, but philosophers really should because there's a lot of great questions just on the nature of work, on the nature of power, uh, and on what the economy could look like. So, Well, you're just an interesting philosopher because uh, you, you are a philosopher, you do philosophy, but you do so many other things and you're actually involved in participatory democracy, participatory budgeting, and actually doing these things. You're seeing more philosophers do this, which is great. Christian Schrader-Frechette, who's... Um, what are the elders in this, this kind of field? She did that in medical. You've seen some philosophers do that in the medical profession. Uh, you see P Kyle, Pose's White, uh, Kyle Pose White's work, um, who does it with, um, with uh, ecological issues in indigenous nations. Um, you see Shane Epting, who's do a younger philosopher who's doing work in transportation. So you're starting to see philosophers really not just go out, but keep a foot in these, in these other realms and learn from these organizations over time. That's the trick is to stick with it. My last question is, could you please tell us about what you're currently working mm. on? The tech stuff, I'm trying to wrap my head around, um, and the climate justice. Uh, I think the specific project is that, especially at the municipal level, I'm really focused on what does a participatory democratic public agency look like? A water utility, a power company. We had a debate in New York about Con Ed, about making Con Ed a, a municipal run utility. There's a lot of bad run, municipal run utilities. How do you make it a really accountable one? What does that look like? And I think that that nitty gritty question of what does the 21st century bureaucracy look like that manages all these systems is a huge. It's being transformed by tech. We're not even seeing it. So it's in a moment where it's being transformed. So how do we get these kinds of norms and views and values into that? That's one. Uh, and then the other is with climate justice and how do you, know, how do you bring about uh, again, the kinds of institutions and the kinds of uh, frameworks that we need to grapple with this momentous transformation that we're, we're seeing in terms of both ecosystems and the political institutions that we have right now. 
Uh, and so, um, the, again, the Green New Deal is a wonderful kind of breakthrough in that. But we also have just the urgency of displaced peoples and what's happened to the Caribbean. We have a lot of Caribbean students here at Brooklyn College. So we see climate refugees every, every year. There's new climate refugees. Uh, so these are two projects that I'm really uh, focused on, excited about. Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And thank you for the great questions. Welcome back to New Books and Global Ethics and Politics, a channel of the New Books Network, brought to you by the Center for Global Ethics and Politics at the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the City University of New York Graduate Center. I'm your host, Susan Irk. Today I'll be speaking with Michael Menzer, author of We Decide, Theories and Cases in Participatory Democracy, published by Temple University Press in 2018. Michael Menzer is an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Urban Sustainability Studies at Brooklyn College and Associate Professor of Earth Environmental Sciences and Environmental Psychology at the CUNY Graduate Center, as well as author of We Decide. Let us now turn to the interview. <laughs> 